glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. As we prepare to receive the words of Jesus, both here, gathered, and you, uh, our, our congregation on live stream, Jesus be with you. For a while there, at the end of spring, early summer, all the sports leagues shut down. It was slim pickings. The only thing on ESPN was a choice between a cornhole tournament and a hot dog eating contest. Well, Joey Chestnut won for the 13th time Nathan's Coney Island Showdown. He ate 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes. ESPN did a little feature, 30-30 feature on him, and they explored his training methods, how he lifts weights with his jaw to build jaw strength. They estimate his jaw is as strong as a German shepherd's. They showed how he would hold his mouth and nose and literally force food down his esophagus, large gulps of food to straighten and firm his esophagus. And then they showed how he would swallow gulps of air for an hour and expand his stomach 400%. And then after that, he would press on his stomach and you could hear some of the most beautiful belches you would ever hear in your life. My thought after watching the feature was, Everyone needs a reason to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> Mission morphs life into meaning. Sometimes it's hot dogs. Sometimes it's more. I remember on this stage, April 2019, the 20th commemoration of Columbine, Philip Yancey, a writer, stood on this stage and he spoke to the Columbine community and he said that it's in the hardest of times that we often see God's greatest work of redemption. And he shared about how during Columbine, he happened to be reading some interviews of people who lived in London who were alive during the Second World War, during the Blitzkrieg, when night after night, the Germans would drop thousands of pounds of bombs and people, thousands were killed and maimed injured. Now, 50, 60 years later, they were interviewing these survivors, and they were saying that that time, those years, were the most full of meaning, the most significant hours that they lived because they were united in relentless effort and extreme sacrifice for one cause, one mission, to defeat Hitler and the Nazis. Mission morphs life into meaning. Welcome to Love This Book. We are preaching this year the Bible cover to cover. 
And what we've begun to really plainly see is that the Bible is one book about one story about Jesus Christ, the most beautiful, powerful, holy person who has ever lived. And these last weeks, let's face, we've been on the top of Mount Massive as we've explored his death, his resurrection, and today, his ascension, which is the launch of our mission. Now, I want to read it to you in a moment, just the first couple of verses from the book of Acts, but let me set up a little bit of context around it. First, you recall that Luke was a part of a missionary team that included the Apostle Paul and at times Barnabas, at times Silas, at times Timothy, at times Titus, this great missionary team that made at least three journeys through uh, the known world, practically, as we'll see in a few moments. And uh, Luke was a part of that team. He, he was writing those stories both about Jesus and the gospel of Luke, what he began to do and began to teach, and then the book of Acts, which is volume two, he writes to talk about what Jesus continues to do and continues to teach. And he's writing to, we're not quite sure who this Theophilus is. It's a man named Theophilus who we think may have been a patron of Luke, a financial supporter, or as Luke was a medical doctor, a patient. We also know by the title that he uses in Luke, most, Luke, most excellent Theophilus, that he was probably a man of some, not only wealth, but standing. Perhaps a, an urban, sophisticated seeker who was wanting to know more about this movement called the church and even more about the Lord of this movement called Jesus. So with that in context, let us receive the words of Jesus this morning from Acts chapter 1. And I'll read through verse 9. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The word of the Lord. In verse 6, the disciples asked a question which was the prevailing culture in Jerusalem. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, 
the Jewish worldview at that time was that when Messiah comes, he would come on a white horse bearing a double-edged sword with blood on it, and that blood was Roman blood, subjugating the empire and establishing a theocratic government in Zion where God himself would rule and make all things right. Is the kingdom coming to Israel? The disciples want to know. And Jesus, well, as you heard, it's not a direct no, more of a not yet. Because the rest of the New Testament goes on to say that indeed Jesus will return on a white horse, brandishing a sword with blood on it. Now that blood is his own blood his self-sacrifice, his creative weakness, his love that will conquer evil and sin and death. That will come. That will happen, but not yet. This time, this season, well, (laughs) here's the big idea. Jesus is going to leave We're going to stay. God help us. That's the big idea of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves. We stay. God help us. Now, Jesus leaves. Where does he go? Hebrews tells us four times this great book in the, later in the New Testament, that when he ascended, Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father and sits down a metaphor for his work complete. At the throne, a metaphor for his ruling power. So understand that Jesus, in his body, with the wounds of his passion written into a dazzling new kind of existence, physical but yet transcending space-time dimensions, Jesus sits down at the throne of God where he rules. That is, he bends every moment every human action to his kingdom rhythms. What are the kingdom rhythms? What is Jesus bringing all things into alignment with? This, and we talk about this at Waterstone a lot. He's first of all transforming his church. Every heart, Jesus is at work by his spirit helping us to think more like Jesus, to act more like Jesus, to be more uh, committed to the values of Jesus all the time. Jesus is at work in you and I and us, his church, stirring up transformed lives that live and love like Jesus. And this other thing he's doing to bring all things into kingdom alignment is as we are filled with him, we move out in concentric circles, to those close, to those far, we move out and we invite more and more people to see Jesus, the Jesus that we witness and testify to. And so more and more people are coming into his kingdom. And then thirdly, it's Jesus transforming his church. It's using his church then to neighbor and bring in more church people into his church. And then thirdly, it's this what we rhythm called restoration, where we walk around the world to those who are broken, those who are needy, systems that need uh, healing, and we place our hands on them, and we show and demonstrate to the world a preview of God's kingdom, what it's going to be like when justice comes rolling down, what it's going to be like when compassion and mercy heal wounds, what it's going to be like when Jesus reigns. That's how he's bringing all things 
from the right hand of the Father into alignment as we, his church, live out the kingdom rhythms, transform neighbor and restore. But, you know, we pause and we think, sure doesn't look like all that's happening. Have you lived in 2020 lately? What's going on? Well, it's a matter of perspective. I came across a great story. Again, you, you will remember it with me that I think illustrates this time and this season in which we now live, where Jesus is ruling, but things are still hard. Do you remember June 23rd, 2018? Twelve junior soccer players and their coach were exploring some caves in northern Thailand, and a monsoon came in, and they ended up stuck in these caves three miles back into these caves. For the first eight days, no one knew if they were dead or alive. It caught the massive media attention. 800 police officers came in, 100 divers from around the world, 2,000 soldiers, and they bailed what's estimated to be over a billion gallons of water out of those caves. Finally, a diver, after an eight-hour dive underwater, made it way back and found that they were still alive. And everyone saw, yes, yes. That was July 2nd. But it took them, as you'll recall, Eight more days, July 2nd to July 10th, to get all of those boys and the coach out. Why? Because they literally had to sedate each boy. And it took a diver five hours once they found the, the straightest path, five hours to the boys, five hours or more out. The boy sedated in oxygen, most of the journey out in darkness and underwater. This rescue plan was unfolding for eight days. Here's how this works. You and I live in July 2nd through 10th. Our rescue plan has been enacted. There's light that's come into the tunnel. We know that God is at work to save. It's just the end hasn't come yet. Not everyone's home. And so there's going to be hard days, years, when we wonder, Lord, When's this plan going to be complete? But we know that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that the rescue plan is completed, it's just taking time for God to work out everyone that he wants to rescue and bring home. That's where we live. So Jesus rules. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 tells us, until he subdues every enemy, under his feet. And that is happening now in the not yet. When he comes, it will happen in its fullness and it will be unmistakable and every eye will see it. But in now, it happens in the daily unfolding of his rescue plan. That's the ascension of Jesus. He leaves. We stay. Now, the mission that we stay for is in Acts 1.8 where we read that we are to be witnesses. My power, will the Holy Spirit, come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the world. The idea of witness there is literally a legal word to give testimony that supports someone's actions or character. 
And as a believer, a follower of Jesus, what we do, our mission is to support and testify to Jesus' actions and character. That's our calling. And as we've walked with our brothers and sisters this morning, sometimes that witnessing the word is martyr. We do it at risk of comfort and pain of death. We are called to be his witnesses. That is the mission. Now, as we say that, two wows, right? Two wows. The first wow is this, what a risk it is. A risk. And I don't mean you and I. Because if you and I die in the cause of Christ, it's an upgrade. You know who's taking the risk? God. (laughs) He is entrusting the rescue plan to a partnership with us. Let, uh, let a writer named Frederick Bigner describe us and see how many of these apply to your life. Here, here's the us. God chose for his work, his holy work in the world, lame brains, misfits, nitpickers, holier than thou's, stuffed shirts, odd ducks, egomaniacs, milk toasts, and closet sensualists. I hit about six of those. How about you? He's entrusted the mission to us. Whoa. That's a risk. <laughs> I, I, I want to do, we, we've, when we were planning this service and we talked with Dennis, we said, we need to feel some discomfort this morning, at least to, to be with our persecuted brothers and sisters. Let me continue it, okay? I want you to actually now turn around and look at the people sitting six or more seats away from you. Just turn around and look at them. Go ahead. Look at them. Make them feel really awkward. Do you know what this means? As you look at them, I want you to think this. You that I'm looking at, you are the hope of the world. Look at them again. You are the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom. You. Woo. <laughs> wow. The body of Christ on mission. That's the first wow. The wow is that it's you and me. Second wow is the extent. If you look at verse 8 again, it talks about in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the farthest reaches of the world. That's not a command. It's really not even a program. It's just how the gospel moves. It moves in a person to their closest connections, and then the next closest connections, and it keeps going until it spreads, well, what should we say, like a virus around the world. And I'm convinced that it happens in every generation What's interesting is if you look at the early church, ends of the earth, okay? In the north, it was an area called Scythia, which was the Arctic. And Paul says the gospel had reached the Arctic in his lifetime. And to the west, the known world was what he called Gaul, Germany, England, uh, Spain, to the Atlantic Ocean, to the west. And Paul says, Spain's on my radar, And to the south, it was Ethiopia. And we have in Acts 8 this great story of an Ethiopian government official getting saved and taking the gospel back to Ethiopia, Africa. And then to the east, we know from church history that the apostle Thomas took the gospel to India and perhaps China. 
In the known world, in the first 40 to 50 years of church history, the gospel expanded to the furthest reaches of the earth. And I'm convinced it happens again and again and again. And you say, what about Waterstone? What about us? Well, let me just throw some things at you and then you say, wow, here it is. First of all, we support over 22 uh, missionaries and mission organizations around the world, 22. Uh, of our budget, the elders have decided that 10% of our entire budget, whatever comes in for the whole year, goes to global missions to send the gospel around the world. And that only accounts what you give to Waterstone. We know for a fact that within Waterstone, we support over 500 Compassion Kids, and most of you support individually a missionary. We tried to tally some numbers on that a few years back, and it's well over half a million dollars out of your pockets that you give to support missions around the world. That's awesome! You're very quiet about it. You can talk, you can clap, you can say, a healthy church is a global church. A healthy church sees the gospel go global. That's what we want to be about. That's the mission. Now, that's the wow. What happens? What happens is we get distracted from the mission. We do. And let me just list a couple of ways that I get distracted from the mission. First, I'm convinced that the fuel of mission is praise. What makes missions go is worship. Now, what does that mean? That means, like Peter says, that we are, the church, called out from the world to praise God publicly so that the world sees our, and hears our praise of Jesus. Mission and missions around the world always begins with worship. And what's worship? Worship is a heart full of Jesus. I'm convinced that what makes you a strong witness where you're talking about Jesus in public is how much worship you have in your heart towards Jesus. Let me, let me illustrate. When you go to a restaurant and you have a fantastic meal, the quality of the food, the quality of the service, you don't need to take a course on restaurant praise to tell people that Oregano's is the best restaurant in town. You just do it. Why? Because your heart's full of praise. It's the same true for your sports teams. I am so sick that I wear my sports team on my face mask. I am a huge witness for the best college football team in the world. That's 0-2 at the moment. I don't need to take a class on how to convince people that that's so. I just do it. Why? Because my heart's full. The same is true with the politicians that we endorse. The same is true with the Netflix series that we want other people to know about. So here's the questions I've been wrestling with. Squirm with me. Why is it that when it comes to Jesus, who I claim to be the most important person, and mission in my life. Why am I so quiet about him? Part of it has to be that my heart is not overflowing with praise for him as it should. And squirm a little more with me. What does that say? 
that if I'm hesitant to go public with my faith in Jesus and even bring his name into a conversation, what does it say about how cold my heart is? I think it's a lack of worship. Secondly, I think it's a lack of focus that distracts us from mission. Let me just illustrate with a big one right now. (laughs) How about politics? You will live an unhappy life if you're dedicated to using politics as your religion. Why? Because politics can feed a hungry stomach, but it cannot change the human heart. As Billy Graham said in 1987, there's nothing coming out of Washington that's going to save the world. Nothing. And before Billy Graham died, as you'll hear in our podcast that Scott Klingsmith and I, Scott Klingsmith is a professor at Denver Seminary, but he was Waterstone's first missionary. It's a fascinating podcast where we talk about, is America a Christian nation? I guarantee we will upset you and encourage you. Listen to the podcast. It drops tomorrow. But one of the things that we say on that was that at the end of Billy Graham's life, one of the things he regretted most was being so close to American political power. He looked back on it and said it was a waste of effort. My friends, can I share something with you that Nick Lillo, our founding pastor, shared in our preaching planning this last week? Here's what we need to know about November 3rd. Are you ready? Are you ready? On November 3rd, Jesus Christ does not change seats. He reigns. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus reigns. The last thing I think distracts us from mission is this, a loss of nerve. I mean, again, I've been pounding my heart a little bit this week. Why is it that I'm so hesitant to bring Jesus into a conversation? It's because I'm a people pleaser. I don't like awkward silences. I don't like to make people uncomfortable. Secondly, I, I just don't like risking relationships. And sometimes that happens when you bring Jesus into a conversation. Third, I'm just lazy. Part of that laziness is, in order to keep sharing Jesus and have those concentric circles happen in your life, you have, a ha- you have to have a constant flow of new unbelievers coming into your world. Frankly, we get so many friends, Christian friends, that we almost become exclusively Christian friendized, and we have very little flow of unbelievers come into our lives. I'm here to say that one of the things I've been convicted of this week is that I have far too many Christian, I don't need another Christian friend. I need more non-believers in my world. Now, some of you, you don't have that issue at all, and that's good. Some of you, it's an issue. Well, you wrestle with the question, why don't we talk more about Jesus? It's It's something we all need help with, and that's the last thing. Jesus leaves, we stay. God help us. How does Jesus help us? Look at verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. Notice, 
in the original language, it's in a future tense. You will be my witnesses. What's that mean? That means it's not a question of whether you will be a witness. It's what kind of witness will you be, strong or silent? That's the question. You will be witnesses. And what's interesting, and then you look at verses 4 and 5, how that comes upon you is the baptism. Do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father promised. John baptized with water. A few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means every Christian has two baptisms. First, the actual metaphor of water baptism that we have and do in the lakes, you, you make a public commitment to Christ. But at the moment you were saved, Jesus ontologically in your being baptized you into the Holy Spirit. The moment you became a Christ follower, He put you down and brought you up and suddenly the Holy Spirit is living inside you. So if the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer, every believer, creating Christ's character, creating Christ's actions and lifestyle. Here's what witnessing means. It means getting yourself with the Holy Spirit in you in front of more and more people who don't yet know Jesus. That's what it's about. Letting people see Christ in you. And I'm telling you, when it happens, you catch fire. It's interesting, a study, to, to look at the Gospels and see the disciples before they had the Holy Spirit and after they had the Holy Spirit. Before they had the Holy Spirit, they were on a boat in a storm. Jesus is asleep. He's so resting in the Father's uh, you know, care. The disciples are panicked for their lives. Or on the hardest night of Jesus' life, Jesus asked for the disciples to stay and pray for them, and the disciples kept falling asleep. I mean, they had everything backwards, and then the Holy Spirit came on them. And then what the book of Acts is about, and it's a tonic to read about it, how the Spirit changed in them and gave them a worship a singular focus on worship, a singular focus on courage, a singular focus on what's the most important mission in the world. And they changed, and they changed the world. I'm telling you, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and what is the most important thing we need to do is get ourselves in front of people who don't yet know him and watch the Spirit work. Here's a case study, real quick. And we'll finish with this. Uh, it, it involves uh, a New York Times columnist named David Brooks and uh, a theologian, one of our heroes who's now in heaven, named John Stott, who is a great British theologian. This is from uh, David Brooks' book, uh, The Second Mountain. Occasionally Christianity, he's a secular Jew, occasionally Christianity would make a visit into my life. For example, at a cocktail party in 2004, somebody mentioned an unfamiliar name, John Stott. I called a friend who told me that if evangelicals had a pope, John Stott would be it. He was arguably the most influential and active evangelical. I did a little research and found that with one exception, in 1956, his name had never appeared in the New York Times. So I decided to learn about him and write a column called, Who is John Stott? To anyone who lives in the secular culture, <laughs> hear this, one's first encounter with a joyful, intelligent Christian comes as something of a shock. We're used to looking down on the Franklin Graham, Pat Robertson types, but it's unnerving to encounter a Christian you would, on balance, very much like to be. Stott's voice, I wrote, is friendly, 
courteous and natural. It is humble, self-critical, but also confident, joyful, and optimistic. Stott's mission is to pierce through all the encrustations and share direct contact with Jesus. Stott says the central message of the gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself as the human defined figure who's alive and moving through the world today. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. That's all from the column that David Brooks wrote. And then Brooks goes on in the book. When Stott came to Washington, he asked me to lunch. I learned many years later, after Stott had died, that he had spent some time pondering, praying, and talking to others about how to handle his lunch with me. He told his friends that he sensed some quaver in the way I wrote that column, some movement or premonition of faith. So at lunch, we chatted for a bit, and then he questioned me directly and hard. What did I believe? What was my faith journey? What did I think of the gospel? What did I think of Judaism? He told me he sensed something in me, some motion toward God, I thought we were there to talk about him, but he was interested only in me. I was unnerved. If the hound of heaven was nipping at my heels, that was either something I did not feel or a truth I did not want to face. What does it mean to be a witness? It means that we ask questions of our unbelieving friends. It means that we listen to their answers and their stories. It means that we pursue them relentlessly. And it means that we have some guts to bring the name of Jesus into the conversation at the right time. Jesus leaves, we stay, and we stay on mission. You will be my witnesses. How's it going for you on mission? That's a huge mission. And I'm begging you, don't settle for anything smaller. Bruce Thielman once ended a sermon. He was a great pastor in Pittsburgh. And he once ended the sermon on mission this way. He said, there are those among us, they're trying to find it through a nice little job and a nice little marriage, two nice little kids, a nice little boy and a nice little girl, a nice little retirement plan, a nice little house with a nice little two-car garage with a nice little car in each half of it, a nice little place to go in the summer, or if you were poor, a nice little place in the winter. But you know what the end of that mission is? It's a nice little hill with a nice little mound on it and a nice little stone on the mound with your name on it and a few dates underneath. You know what will have happened? We will have lost ourselves in mediocrity when we could have found ourselves in fulfillment and immortality. May we not settle for anything less than being witnesses for the living Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, 
Would you just work in our hearts, show us our level of witness in this moment, and help us to take out of here some kind of commitment, some kind of vision, that even beginning this week, we are going to find new ways to worship you publicly, to bring your name into conversations, to nurture and manicure new friendships with unbelievers, Lord, to truly love them and listen to them, and see how your Spirit wants to work in their lives as they encounter Him in us. May we not settle for mediocrity. May we be a church on fire and on zeal for Jesus Christ. And let's stand and sing it, our hearts to him, now as we close.